What's up, everyone? This is Rose Glass, episode two, part two. I've got Cheyenne Sanchez here with me, and we are going to continue our topic on psychology and uh, the the hardships of actually being in the system and in the profession. Um, we started in on it and got a, about 10 minutes done, and there were other constraints on that that I don't want to go into right now. Uh, but Cheyenne Sanchez is a dear friend of mine. Uh, she's been in my life for several years now, and I trust her with a lot. Uh, so uh, give her give her the good grace that she deserves and uh, say hi. Well, hello. How are you doing today, Cheyenne? I am doing great. I'm super psyched about this. So Awesome. Uh, and I, I'm super psyched to be doing it with you. Hopefully we'll get some good guests on here pretty soon and like make it a real thing. Right, right. But you know, if we're just shooting the shit and throwing spaghetti at the wall, who cares? Maybe that's fun too. Well, I hope you're cleaning it up, not me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's, let's see if we can get back on topic. Um, you were talking about... Uh, coping mechanisms and the way that you talk to yourself about going home and uh not really uh having to emotionally separate yourself from these kids and uh what that's like um have you been afraid at all at any point in time that uh that would affect your ability to mother adversely anywhere in the future or or is it a skill you think would be beneficial I actually believe that it's going to be beneficial. Um, the reason being, uh, I've I've seen I've I've seen it all honestly with these kids. Um, I've seen kids come from really great homes who just they really just needed some help, and I've seen kids come from really broken homes who like need a lot of help. Um, but for me personally, it's kind of shown me how to approach a situation if a kid's feeling emotional or like if they're angry and don't know how to express it. Right. Um, because we do have a lot of kids who mentally aren't the age that they are, you know, physically, physically. Yeah. Um, so I have, I've dealt with kids who are physically seven years old, but mentally they're about one or two. Mm. They don't really know how to communicate very well. So I've learned a whole, a whole lot about how I can approach a situation differently. And I think, um, as hopefully a future mother of a child, Mm -hmm. I would be able to approach that situation differently and not get frustrated, you know, and be able to kind of help my child understand what they want so that I understand, you know? Right. And I, I think that's probably the healthiest thing you can get out of it. Uh, let's let's backtrack a little bit to what you were saying about uh, the difference in mental and physical age. Uh, how often do you see that is because of a physical deficit, something that happened to them, uh, whether that's uh, a trauma that they experienced, a car wreck, some uh, getting hit in the head, something like that, uh, or even you know a disease versus uh, one of those moments. And I, I imagine there's some overlap in these numbers, but... Uh, those moments where their life has just been so hard in one way or another and they've been so neglected uh, that they haven't had the opportunity to actually grow up into their proper age? Uh, That actually happens quite a lot. Um, But that's the unfortunate thing about it. it. We see so many kids come in 
and part of it part of them could be that uh they have a mental disability like uh they could be autistic or you know Mm-hmm. a slew of other things um so there are those numbers that kind of get mixed in the batter there um but it's really uh a lot of them have just been so abused whether it be mentally or physically that they don't develop as they're supposed to so we have a lot of kids who they don't know how to act their age because they have two different ages in theory, you know, mm-hmm. I, I I think that's that's wise of you. Um, let Let's talk about uh, some of the mental disabilities that seem to be tied physically. Um, for example, autism. How How do you deal with the idea that uh, you know that they're sort of stuck in this distance between their mental age and their physical age, or uh, how often do you see them just get stuck at a mental age and continue to grow physically? And how much of that do you blame on uh, uh, physical problems versus uh, just something that has happened to them personally, so, uh, the way that their brain seems to work automatically? Um, well, let's let, let me think. Cause I have, I, I don't ask deal you like six questions and that was right. Right. <laughs> Um, I have only dealt with actually a handful of autistic kids where I work. Mm-hmm. Um, the main reason being it's super overstimulating for them. Right. Um, lots of noise, usually lots of aggression and stuff like that. So it's a very rare occasion where we actually have several autistic people at once. Um, but, uh, there are t- times I, I had dealt with one, um, physically he was a teenager uh, mentally, he was about an elementary student. Um, he uh, had been abused uh, in his past. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I could kind of see how that could halt um, brain development, being that he was just so traumatized. Right. But again, he has that autism. So it's kind of like you're sitting on a fence and you could lean either way in his case. Mm-hmm. Um other cases it just they were it happened they were born with it and there was no being able to affect that so it there isn't there's a healthy number between like having autism and it being just autism or having that past trauma that could result in the halt of your brain development and everything like that mm-hmm and for those of uh, the listeners who don't have a lot of experience with, with uh, autistic people, could you maybe describe what it was like uh, for you to really start to deal with those kids for the first time? Uh, you know, any any disconcerting feelings that you had and how you overcame those and, and how you uh, sort of learned how to deal with them? I... I was extremely overwhelmed if I'm going to be honest. Uh, Most people are. Yeah. Like it's, it's not a, it's not an everyday thing for people usually to interact with someone who has autism, whether they be like a high functioning autistic or low functioning autistic. Like it's, I I don't see it a lot if I'm not at work, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So when I went in 
to this job, it was quite overwhelming for me because I, I honestly didn't know how to approach the situation. I was treating these kids who are mentally undeveloped the same as I was the other kids. And the thing about that is you have to treat them a different way because they don't understand why it's going on or what's going on when, you know, someone who doesn't have autism is like, oh yeah, I punched that kid because I was mad. And, you know, like if I'm trying to explain that to someone who has autism and it's it's a very severe case, they're, they just sometimes do it. They're, they don't have a rhyme or reason sometimes. Other times it could be overstimulation where they get really, really like stressed and that's just what they do. Um, so for me, I was... I had to take a step back and really like readjust my um, my mental think- thinking um, on how to approach them. Right. Because it was just a completely different world for me. Do you feel like you've learned a little bit more about how they think and as a result have improved your ability to communicate with them? Yeah, I I think I have. Like um, for me, the the kids that I've that I've dealt with you know, mentally aren't very old. So the way that you, the way that I could get them to kind of listen to me or, you know, follow the rules is kind of give them an incentive, give them something that they want and they'll do what you ask because, you know, to them it's, they're getting a reward for listening. Guys, this girl's out here bribing the special kids. (laughs) Shut your mouth. Uh, no, so I'll I'll actually uh, trip over my own tongue and swallow my shoe here for a second because I, I, you know, I've had some uh, relatively deep personal experience with this this disability in particular, and uh, you know I, I started this new job at a gas station here in town, and we've got this guy that comes in regularly, and when I first met him, I thought he was on drugs deep hard drugs i thought he was doing meth and pot at the same time and like might have also been drunk Uh, (laughs) and he's just wandering around the store friendly as could be but you know he had those ticks he had uh, a little bit of everything going on all at once and uh, i actually had to catch myself because it wasn't until i was checking him out that i realized uh that he was on the spectrum right you know, it, it was sort of a, a natural thing for me to slip into that, uh, well, to stop being judgmental, really, first of all, uh, and then uh, slip into something more akin to mercy and the ability to empathize with him. Uh, you know, I think that probably happens a lot more today than we're really willing to realize. Uh, so, yeah, no, just, you know, be careful and be kind out there, fellas. Um absolutely that, that's kind of where i wanted to go with that but uh let's let's get back to sort of all of the other things that you deal with on a regular basis um let's talk about the kids who uh, have severe anger issues and i know that you yourself has dealt with that uh in the past maybe not nearly to the degree that some of these kids are but i know that you know that struggle uh he- has it informed you any about yourself uh, dealing with these kids in particular? Um, a little bit, yes. Uh, as far as like the extremes go, no, not really, because a lot of the anger, you know, comes from a kid that is very young, 
and they're angry about nothing important. Um, but like it has been a little bit insightful on how I learn to control myself a little better and not necessarily say the first thing that comes to my mind. You know, think about what I'm saying before I say it. Use what we call coping skills to calm myself down, you know, take some deep breaths before I approach a situation. Mm. So do you think that um, while these skills you've been taught to the kids are sort of specialized towards these situations, towards these really hard situations, uh, do you think that more broadly, if we applied these skills and sort of taught them uh, in general, uh, not just to people who have a particularly hard time, that, that that might be beneficial for us as a society? Oh, absolutely. I I really think that part of our problem now is that we think or we speak before we think, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you usually catch most of your problems because you say something that you don't necessarily mean out of anger, you know? I mean, you and I have been there. We We know that we've said things to each other in the past that we didn't necessarily mean it was just that we were fuming and that was the best method we could think was just to get it out which you know letting go of that anger is a good thing but you need to approach the situation with open eyes and being calm because nothing is ever going to be accomplished if you're both just yelling well you know i I would love to agree with you, but I think that that might actually not be, uh, might not actually be a deep enough uh, articulation of what happened, especially between us. Uh, like maybe, maybe at large, you're uh, much more correct. But you know, if I think back on like our really bad fights, um, it wasn't that we were saying stuff we didn't mean. It's that we were saying stuff we meant, but we didn't actually know what we meant. So we couldn't actually tell each other what we were actually feeling. We we just got as close as possible, and it was it was bad. <laughs> like we weren't actually really that close to what we actually meant, and that that's really uh, the miscommunication of it caused most of the problems, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I mean, with us, I completely agree. We like we had our issues, but you know, um, I feel like. Had I not tried to be the loudest person in the room, um, or the loudest person in the conversation, for that matter, mm-hmm. um, we could have been able to um, assess the situation a little better. Um, I do <laughs> act on my impulses a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, especially with me not being as educated with mental health and your impulses and things like that and the anger, I was... You know, <laughs> I I just did what I thought so would get to a little speak. backstory for the listeners. This was like three and four years ago. There's been a lot of time. We've changed a lot as people. We've grown. So don't don't be too harsh on us for the things we admit right now. Oh yeah, no. This is we have come so far. Um, you know, I I didn't even realize that you, it was that you tried to be the loudest person in the room. I was so used to matching people's energy with what they put into the fight that like it didn't even occur to me that that was a strategy you were using i mean honestly i just i don't even know why but it was just i decided that you know what if i'm gonna be the i am the loudest maybe he'll back off but that did not happen 
nope i'm a little too hard-headed for that we both are like let's let's be real we're stubborn as hell oh yeah uh so well you know here's here's a fun little tangent um we've already talked about how miscommunication was a major problem that we had and it it affected our relationship a lot although uh i think in some ways our our willingness to come back and still be in the friendship even though we were really mad at each other sometimes like the the kind of mad you walk away from somebody and you never look back kind of mad um i i think that one of our other problems was is we had a a deep disagreement about the philosophy of friendship and i think that might be interesting to talk about for a minute i i agree with you i think um we were both we were both what, I'm about? <laughs> what do you remember what i'm talking about uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> oh and and don't get me wrong i i there were things i had wrong about it too and i i've learned uh that were really bullshit for me to even think at the time let alone say and ask of you uh right right we've it's changed a bunch though you know like we've we've really grown into ourselves hopefully yeah so that's that's kind of what i want to talk about for a sec i want to i want to see you know i want to see if you can remember sort of correctly uh and i guess i shouldn't say correctly if i if i and if we agree on what your point of view was at the time, uh, what my point of view was at the time, and why we disagreed, and how we've sort of changed our views since then. So right. without me feeding you any information uh, beyond what I already have, let what do you think that that, that particular disagreement uh, was rooted in? I mean, if I'm being completely honest, I don't know. Um, I just, I think I kind of had this thought in my head of what everything was supposed to be like. I'm going to blame the movies, um, but I just really think that, that that's kind of where my brain went. It had to be like... It just had to be like it was in the movies, you know? Mm. But I also didn't really take into consideration anybody else's feelings at the time. Right. I I was very closed off at the fact that other people had feelings. <laughs> well, and see, that's, that's not... I mean, I see your description, and I I see how that could be applied now, but that's not how I've been thinking about it. Uh, okay. For the longest time my thought was that you had this um relationship with the idea of friendship that was some sort of sort of warped in a sense and that you believed that friendship meant being supportive of somebody no matter what uh even if you disagreed with them even if you had all of the evidence uh that it wasn't right to tell somebody what to do with their life if you cared about them uh and and you were really deeply concerned about them or even if it was that because you disagreed with me about uh the status of everything that was going on um that uh because you couldn't see what I could see that I was sort of living in a delusion and therefore your assessment of the rules of friendship were still correct. 
Right. Um. And I'm I'm not trying to put you in a corner. I. I'm... No, no. I I I know what you, I know what you mean. Okay. Um. And for that particular situation, um. Was I wrong? I, do you think? Like, have I been thinking about this incorrectly? I think partially you were looking at it with some goggles. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. I still feel like so. I was right, like, but, you know. I think part of it was that you had those those goggles on Mm -hmm. and what you thought was the beginning and the end of it right well certainly what i'd hoped was the beginning of the end of it right right i also sort of had a different pair of goggles on in that situation um way to phrase it what that's an interesting way to phrase it i well, the thing was, is that, like, I, I was being dipped in, like, oxytocin. What, sort of describe for me what those goggles were, because I'm, now I'm curious. The goggles for you or the goggles for me? The goggles for you. Mine are obvious. Okay, well, yeah, okay. Um, so the goggles for me, like, I just... <sighs> I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Um, it was just that I was... I don't know. I don't know. Okay, we'll come back to it. Don't don't worry about it. So, do you think that your sort of concept of friendship has changed at all? Do you think the rules of engagement are different? Um, a little bit, yes. Um, I haven't had a situation quite like that one again ever. Um, there. But <laughs> but uh, I I have kind of adjusted the way I see things. Mm-hmm. Um. And the way I kind of approach a friendship, I don't usually kind of put myself out there anymore, really. Like, you know, I have a few friends here and there, so it doesn't really change much mm-hmm. for me. But me now would have approached that situation differently. Right. Well, actually, I, and we're probably going to have to give listeners context at some point or another. <laughs> um but how how do you think that you would have approached it a little bit differently now if you were to go back well for starters um i would be a lot more calm um that had a tendency to be my problem Mm. i wasn't calm uh when it came to like talking to you about it all i it, it kind of yeah yeah it it just really seemed as though i didn't care about how you felt um which i would completely change because i do care about how like i i care about how you feel and i care about your feelings right so like that whole situation would have been different and it wouldn't have blown up quite like it did i don't think at least on our end right um as far as the rest of the situation goes I kind of still stand where I stood, but maybe kidding me, (laughs) but maybe not as extreme. Okay. Okay. Like I'm standing where I stood, but maybe a few inches away. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. I don't know. Would you be willing to specify that for me at all? uh... Like what you really mean by that? (sighs) 
you always have to go for the hard questions. Well, yeah, uh, it makes it more interesting. Right. Um, like, th- this is a podcast. I may be the host, but fuck me. Like, if, if you want to ask me a hard question, go for it. You right. You just have to be the interviewee. I think... Um, I still would have been supportive of the other person's feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, like, we don't know what's in their heart. Like, I know that you had what you saw mm-hmm. and you know, I couldn't see what you see, but I could, you know, really trust this other person's heart. So I kind of still lean more towards that just because I've, you know, I've known that person and I can, I can trust their heart. So I think I would still be sitting in that same, like I would still agree, but maybe not as extreme. Okay, well, I suppose that's fair. Um, you know, I've I've had a really good opportunity to sort of get over that whole situation as far as my goggles are concerned. Um, right. And I still think he's a dick. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think that's pretty objective. But we, we can move on from that. Um, anyway, yeah, I think this is a good time to actually talk about why the hell I call it rose glass, because I don't know that I've talked about that uh, at all yet no and i I, i'm curious actually so well this is actually pretty decent segue so in the 70s i think might have been 60s they came out with these sunglasses that were uh red that they that their lenses were red and they called them rose colored glasses and all the hips all the hippies warm because you know they go outside and they turn the sky purple uh and cool things like that and it was basically like you know a lesser form of wearable lsd right uh, and because of the way that it colored the world at, at a political level you know because that was um the civil rights movement was going on during the same uh, about the same time and everybody was having the free love movement and women's rights and all of that uh was going on the uh, more traditional political spheres ended up with this sort of joke slash um stab at anybody who wore rose-colored glasses that they couldn't really see the world for what it was uh, because they were looking through this lens and it discolored the world in such a way that they couldn't make apt decisions okay right so it's it's actually pretty clever right because yeah absolutely so to this day, whenever you uh, hear somebody say they've got rose-colored glasses on, usually what they're talking about is that they are way too optimistic, that they're dreamers, that they uh, have this fairy tale in their head of what the world should be and should look like and what it is, and that they have no respect for uh, the harshness that it actually is. Um, right. So my idea was sort of a double entendre that uh, not only should we be able to look through the rose-colored glasses and see what is on the other side of them and sort of learn to understand that, but to also transcend the rose-colored glasses. Right. Uh, sort of a through-the-looking-glass sort of thing where we, you know, we really take them off and we try to figure out a new way of thinking. Right, right. That 
you know, because we we end up getting caught in the political spectrum between left and right and uh, conservative and liberal, whatever you want to call them. And, you know, the the voices are they're so compressed that there's no room for real nuance. There's uh, these sound bites that you hear over and over again, and it ends up being these uh, backbitey Facebook posts. You know, um, I, I know for sure the abortion uh, fight is still well and strong in a lot of people's hearts, and um, the pro-lifers are uh, constantly just bashing away at the uh, pro-choicers and the pro-choicers are just constantly bashing back uh, you know and they have clever little points that you know really make you think for about five seconds uh, but it never right. really moves beyond that and nobody has ever really moved on their opinion uh, it's it's just a screaming match and nobody ever gets to the end of it so the fact we, right. we were talking about that sort of thing in the past and how we've sort of mended that bridge uh, is, is actually a really fantastic segue uh, for why I called the <laughs> rose glass is because you know my theory is that there's a magic door number three in the same way that when you look through uh, a story or uh, a movie and you know the heroes have to make a choice and it seems like there's no way out and then all of a sudden deus ex machina hand of god comes in saves them or opens up another opportunity and it, it works out everything is fixed and fine um, and I really think that at some point there is actually a very real third door, magic door number three. Right. I, I can agree with that. So the idea is that the same is true for the intellectual world, that we can learn to think outside of the boxes of left and right to find a, uh, an almost transcendent way of thinking. And I'm, I'm probably going to get a lot of flack for that one in the future, but let's go with it anyway. That you know that there's a new way of thinking, that there's a new dimension to it, uh, that not only sort of detracts from both sides of the argument and, and sort of uh, pins down the falsehoods that they like beating each other over the head with, um, right? But that might actually serve in uh, finding a way to fix the problem. So, uh, for example, staying with the abortion thing, uh, my man Jordan Peterson <laughs> was talking to, uh, I think it was a congressman, if I remember correctly. It might have just been an intern. Um, but he just he just had a few minutes, and or if that, it was probably like 60 solid seconds. And the congressman ended up wanting to, like, bring him in and speak. <laughs> but essentially what he said was that, you know, you guys have been fighting a lot over this and it seems to me that you're not thinking about it correctly you're not formulating the problem correctly and you know the problem isn't whether or not we should allow people to get abortions it's how we solve all of the bad things and all of the situations that lead a person to the point where they would want an abortion in the first place right and it completely flips the argument on its head because it's no longer is it right or is it wrong to allow this it's what have we screwed up as a culture so deeply and so badly that we want to go and do that and like you know personal experience i've i've had that moment where 
I thought that that's what I wanted, even for a few fleeting seconds. And it's it's a few fleeting seconds that I kick myself for to this day. But right, right. It doesn't escape me that there are reasons to want that. Yeah. So you know, let's let's have a real conversation, sort of as a culture about, you know, uh, is there a way that we can make maternity leave paid for well enough so that women aren't afraid to lose their jobs and aren't afraid to lose work to going home and be mothers for the first year? Uh, right. Is there a way that we can make sure that young girls who get pregnant accidentally? Uh, you know, have a support system in their local towns, uh, wherever they may be, that can sort of catch and prepare them and help them. Uh, And, you know, my personal belief is that that's technically the church's job uh, from a sociocultural perspective. And I don't think that's necessarily a political opinion. Um, But, you know, whatever we are doing is wrong. Right, right. We're allowing it or not. So through the rose glass is sort of the idea that we can figure out new ways of thinking about things. I I honestly, I, I like that a lot. I think it adds a lot of thought and perspective to people who don't necessarily think about those things, you know? Right. Well, and it, it's so... It's so cartoonish, you know? It's it's like you Oh, how do I say it? Oh, it it's two dimensional. That's well, cartoonish. Um that's what I really mean. Yeah. You know, I was watching this um I I was made to watch, I should say, this YouTube video from um a men's rights activist. I mean what I say that he wasn't a men's rights activist. He was actually a misogynist. Uh he in in like the deepest sense of the words. Um, you know, and that's something I've been accused of pretty frequently. Uh, right, right. But he was talking about, you know, how women will get married and they'll have a couple kids and then they will uh, start cheating and they'll get on antidepressants and become addicted to opioids and painkillers and things like that. And then they'll uh, divorce their husbands and continue to sleep with the younger, more attractive guy. Uh, He doesn't have to pay for the kids because uh, the father is still financially obligated to by the courts to pay for that situation. And even when he's not in the situation or if he doesn't have the means to pay that out, that the government essentially steps in and becomes the husband. And we have a lot of freeloading women that live to pop out kids and take pills essentially. And he, he was essentially saying that all women for one reason or another, were going to go down that path and that none of them should be trusted uh, because the, the divorce courts are so incredibly cruel uh, to men in particular. Right. Now, let me clarify. None of that is my opinion. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, I was going to say you should probably jump in on that and say, hey, this is not what I see. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and we, we've we watched uh, Ronan, our, my cousin, your close friend, uh, go through this uh, terrible divorce with his parents and his mother really needed that compensation and she needed the stability and she you know she didn't do all of those things she wasn't cheating she wasn't uh, you know popping a bunch of pills and abdicating her responsibilities uh, right 
and then he did and he walked away and he did all of those things and in that sense i think it was very appropriate that the divorce court should side with her and uh you know chop him off at the knees for all i care Um, right absolutely but we have this other problem which is there are these men who want to be good fathers um and who want to be in their children's lives and are being deprived of that ability uh because one thing or another you know uh when you go into divorce court typically you use everything you have and because of the format that court takes place in uh, i think women are naturally sort of adapted to it because it's a social game it's about manipulating point of view and that's something that women in particular are really good at um, yeah I'm not saying men can't be but it, it's it's more natural uh for women to do that you know it's it's the whole barbie versus lego things you know uh guys because we are typically built for more brawny tasks for building things Uh, a lot of our power and a lot of our specialities goes into physical things uh, rather than social things which is why we tend to be poor on the social end and uh, etc etc right they're already getting the short end of the stick in divorce court but the real question is you know how do we stop these young men and these older men Uh, from becoming so incredibly cynical that they see all women as the enemy, that they can't trust any of them, uh, that they're meatbags used as, uh, you know, sex partners alone, and that's all that they're good for, and et cetera, et cetera. How do we make sure that that was, you know, not even close to the topic of conversation? So I I really watched this thing, and it, it baffled me, and it was like... It was like watching a video about a parallel universe. You knew there was something wrong with it, but you couldn't quite tell what. You know, maybe it was just that the image was flipped. Um, so I was really watching this thing, and he brought up this point that I haven't been able to get out of my head, and it goes kind of back to the government taking the position of husband, and he said, you know, that traditional marriages were broken that the right. idea that it's the husband's responsibility to come in and provide for an entire family without that family giving anything back to him uh, was essentially broken and that uh, women need to be providers just as much as men and that if not, uh, it's essentially a communist regime at the level of four or how many, many children you have. Right. And you know... What was really hard about that? What? <laughs> I couldn't tell him he was wrong. I mean, I kind of could because I was like, well, yeah, but that's not broken. That's actually how that's supposed to work. And men are really happy when that works that way, when they can provide for their families. Like, that's something that we right. want to do. Uh, you know, and, and women's ability to be with the children and be home and not work is really important for developmental psychology. Like, why are you trying to deprive these children of that? Why are you making out all women to be these robots that are nothing but pleasure seekers? And I mean, obviously, there's probably some personal trauma that went on there. Uh, in right, absolutely. And, you know, they found this movement that was giving into their resentment and their anger. And, you know, they fell down the rabbit hole. Uh, Right. They fell through the wrong rose glass. (laughs) Yes, they did. So um, the thing that led me to believe or that that really triggered me is, you know, I've been working with uh, 
sort of very liberal people for a very long time and i had one in particular that was like the tumblerina like every bad thing you could say about uh an activist right now in our culture she's antisha she's lgbt she's extremely overweight uh she's sexually promiscuous like she's angry constantly she probably had some form of autism or another and learning disability uh she was extremely articulate she could write like nobody's business i mean she could pump out probably a thousand words a minute or something like that just just she was a monster to contend with because she was so incredibly smart but she, right she couldn't see clearly so, she was you know, she, she had a closed off mind yeah, and I mean it wasn't it wasn't just closed. It it was trauma triggered. And and you knew that right. because when you told her something that was obvious and she couldn't hear it, she would respond violently to things that weren't even like a threat. Like, right. You're not allowed to say that. Why am I not allowed to say that? Because it's evil. Why is it evil? I don't know. And it's like that's a weird conversation to have. So I, I started to begin to think that, you know, if you are living a miserable life, if you have all of these things wrong with you, if you've been sexually abused uh, in your younger years, if you've been uh, mentally, emotionally abused on top of it, and you've just lived in this really terrible uh, sort of poor situation, and, you know, you don't understand family values, you don't understand how to love anybody else, you don't understand how to communicate with people, and you're closed off, uh, that you can begin to sort of pathologize uh, your reasons for not having all of the things that you might want, uh, that, you know, it's the world's fault, which it's very easy to fall into, and, like, no wonder, because that's that would be really nice if it was just like the world's fault and not ours because then we could just riot against it constantly which is exactly what she wanted to do right so i began to wonder like what was the pathology that was sort of springing up in her extremism like what was it exactly that she was suppressing that came out in all of these ugly ways that she fought for you know if and i'm gonna go kind of deep into marxism here um Marx was a very angry and resentful man. Like, you know, all of his his writings per se, poorly written on top of it. Um, but among them, he has this poem, and I, I just had it up on my phone because I was talking to somebody else about it. Um, let's see if I can find it. Oh, don't crap out on me now, phone. Yeah, he, uh, there's a poem called Invocation of One in Despair, and it's just a rant against God and everything that's good and just how he's going to burn the entire world to the ground and raise up his unholy empire and how he's just going to make everything worse. And, like, if you want to see something like that, you go where Marxism is actually implicated. Or, uh, yeah where where not implicated implemented there we go um you know all of his policies did exactly what he actually designed them to do and none of what people thought they were going to do right you know because there were those really well-meaning people that were just like let's take care of but everybody and make sure nobody suffers and they really meant that in the best way possible um 
so in, in their naivete they opened up this black hole of abyss and I kept wondering what is it that's so attractive about this what is it that people can't get through their minds about the way that this won't work? Why is it that when they're presented with all of this evidence, with 60 million dead bodies, why can't they see that this is a, just a terrible idea? Why can't they see where this is actually coming from? And when I was watching this YouTube video, it clicked. And it was because of the way that he was talking about the traditional marriage structure. He was actually right. It is fundamentally communist. And I think that that instinct inside of us, that format of behavior, of wanting to be in that relationship and being in that marriage and being that um, modus operandi, um, has been so suppressed by resentful, angry women that haven't had that pleasure, haven't been afforded the opportunity, that they have lashed out against the world because of it, and that you know they still crave that so badly that it has to leak out somewhere, because the harder you suppress something, the angry it becomes, and the less you can control it. Right, absolutely. So that, you know, this desire for communism isn't actually a desire for communism, it's a desire for family, to be in the family structure. Yeah. And then you think about socialism, and it's basically the same thing, except it's a much more watered-down version. It's not nearly as strict. It's not a take from everybody and give to who you think needs it. It's much more of a, hey, we all need to sort of pay for this as, as sort of a general uh, association of people as a culture. And it occurred to me that the role that was the, that, that was supposed to be filled by was the church because churches usually occupy I forget whose number this is there's a number and it's like 200 something and mm -hmm. it's the number of people you can keep track of in your mind and actually care about and you know this number is powerful and it, it decides church sizes it decides click sizes uh, and it's so powerful that like it usually decides how many Facebook friends you have and Usually what you'll find if you have 600 Facebook friends is that you'll go through your friends list and you'll realize that 300 or 400 of them, not only do you not care for, but you, you don't even talk to them anymore. And that, that, you know, that they don't really need to be there. <laughs> I can't believe you just did that. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a poop emoji on my screen right now. <laughs> she just texted me that for no damn reason. Um, but yeah, so that, that, you know, because people had fallen out of this community and of the family system of the hierarchy that they were, you know, programmed to operate in, that they were going to force the entire world to operate in the thing that they couldn't. Right. And the more that I think about it, the more that I think that that's correct. And I think it probably was that that way of thinking, that that way of pathologizing things, uh, that that philosophy has cropped up innumerable times in history. And that it's probably been the end of every civilization that has come to an end. You know, it's why Rome fell. Because in right. the, the ending days of Rome, pedophilia was like normal and expected 
yeah you were you were a child male you know until your balls dropped you were treated as a female and you know that probably started something along the lines of because like physically male and females don't really differ until you get to like 13 years old Um, but obviously they went way far off the rails with it Uh, so you know and we have evidence of all of those things and these cultures were still able to organize themselves and raise up megalithic monuments and the question is you know how do you go from something that well organized where everybody's working together and everybody's agreeing on it and you spend hundreds of years building this one thing that you know is the most important thing that you could be spending money on and it's expensive on top of it how is it that that society falls apart and I not only do I th- I think that I'm onto something, but I think that technology is a game changer for it. You know, Nikola Tesla had this idea that uh, human communication was limited by three things, and I can't remember the other two for whatever reason right now. Um, but one of them was the inability to effectively communicate that that it wasn't um, efficient enough. And that the more efficient that it got, the faster we would be able to progress. Lo and behold, the transistor came about, and that's exactly what happened. Um, so, in that idea is, you know, what if we could go through that cycle where society essentially falls apart for whatever mechanisms are underlying it fast enough in a short enough time span that the physical structures don't actually get torn down and the people that are left behind the the people that sort of understand what went wrong and how not to do it again can re cohabitate they can you know start again in some sense and i'm I'm really hoping that that's true because like otherwise i'm talking to like apocalypse levels here you know and we have the ability to do it like the those bombs aren't going anywhere and like cold war scared people for a reason so i don't remember why i fell down that rabbit hole i don't know but you you really went for (laughs) i think i was talking about like you know different ways of thinking and uh you know what rose glass meant i think that's what it was yeah probably (laughs) do do you have any thoughts on that (laughs) Uh, no, not really. I mean, like you've you've said it all, honestly. Like there, I don't think you left a rock unturned. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, uh, let me ask you this: Is there anything in your life right now? Uh, let's go with politically, just because it's probably easiest. Where you really disagree with somebody. Cheyenne, don't send me a dick. <laughs> um, is there anything that you're sort of frustrated with right now uh, with our culture, with the way that we're treating something politically? You know, something that you have this uh, innate sort of third door that you've uncovered that nobody will listen to? Not currently, no. Um, I mean just in general for like back on that mental health standpoint um i think um people approach it the wrong way um 
and that's kind of what causes the situation to escalate. But uh, as far as anything else goes, no, not really. Like, okay, well, I can work with that. Um, there was a study done by I think it was Jonathan Haidt, if I remember correctly, and uh, basically what it it's been tracking is the level of mental issues, uh, you know, anxiety, depression, it's uh, self harm, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, uh, the current generations that are growing up who, who are still under the thumb of their parents and even going into college. Um, and the thing that they've found is that not only is it accelerating, but it's getting terrible and it's getting yeah. really quickly and nobody knows what to do about it. Like, no, absolutely. It, I think freshmen in college this year, I think 80% of them have some sort of anxiety disorder or another and uh at least 75 percent of those are on some sort of medication for it i yeah i, I don't know that those numbers are correct I, I you know somebody's gonna have to fact check on me and tell me that that's bullshit but you know, i feel like it's really i feel like high. you're well, yeah. yeah i feel like you're in the ballpark mainly because they've made college so stressful and like you're trying to pick a career that you're going to potentially do for the rest of your life. So there's a whole lot of like stress that comes with that, you know? Right. Well, like, and I think there's several components to just the college aspect of that, but I, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. I, I really want to talk about the generational issue right now. Um, so what? The, the generational issue, because like it's the kids in high school, it's the kids in middle school, you know? Um, I think uh, cutting is an epidemic. You know, when when I was uh, in high school, I think, yeah, high school, you know, I knew basically all the girls that cut themselves, but it was usually, you know, the bottom like 3%, you know, of the social hierarchy. Right. You know, they, they weren't confident in themselves. They didn't really have themselves together. They had no real personality besides, you know, attention-seeking. Uh, they were usually abused in one way or another. They couldn't deal with any sort of conflict uh, without breaking down. You know, and, and I, I dealt with them in one way or another. Um, I, I tried to help as much as I could, but I, I don't think that I was actually effective at all. Um, but those numbers have spiked to where it's more normal to do it than not to. And then on top of that, something that I can see personally and that, you know, uh, I can't really have anybody argue with me is that my school's counselor's office is overwhelmed with students wanting therapy, completely and utterly overwhelmed. There is a wait list for everybody that works there and they've started like you know uh going off site and they've started contracting with people to be counselors for the school and it's wild to see because like i know kids that go in there i'm one of the kids that go in there you know i know how messed up i am <laughs> so right to to see all of this you know these these numbers are very real and uh, I guess we, now we can get into components of it because, you know, we live in a pretty good day and age. Like, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And terrible things happen all the time. And I, I don't dispute that. But 
we are better than we have ever been as a civilization, as a species. And I think that really means something. So our inability to cope with things getting better is a way big red flag for me. Like, what is that even supposed to mean, you know? Yeah. I think in some sense, it's not that college is getting harder. I mean, it was always probably broken in one way or another, but I, I really think that in some sense, we're getting softer and the, the younger kids are suffering the worst for it. Um, and let's see, are there three major components? I think there's three. One, two. You didn't look at the thing I sent you. I, I'm looking at it right now. I just wasn't going to acknowledge it because you've been messing with me plenty. She she sent me a man who is essentially in a morph suit with his hands free, uh, wearing a pumpkin on his head, dancing. He went on um, America's Got Talent. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> he didn't make it past auditions, but... <laughs> well, good, good for them for not picking his dumb ass. um but yeah let let, let's talk about like because i know you're probably seeing this firsthand so you can confirm uh you know there's this philosophy that was uh brought up in the 80s as sort of uh this post-enlightenment thinking that's gone on and it really sort of saturated itself into the 90s that we should not only uh care for the children in public schools but we need to coddle them as much as possible that we need to make it so incredibly safe that nothing can go wrong uh you know that nobody ever gets hurt that you know essentially they have they always feel safe at school right and that they're you know that we eliminate bullying that bullying is never to be done and never to be talked about and it doesn't exist anymore we've conquered it Uh, and on the surface those sound like really good things but you know, if if guys aren't allowed to rib on each other and they're not allowed to get good at it and they're not allowed to get good at thinking about those things, but also build up their resilience against them, you know, from from kids that actually don't mean it all that much, then it's really worse when somebody who is malevolent, who is malicious, does do those things. And for the girls, it's no easier. I mean, their bullying comes from in slightly slightly different forms. You know, guys usually hit each other or just say, you know, the worst shit you can imagine or try to, you know, narcissistically bend people's perceptions. Um, But girls, it's like, you know, not only do you have something that you can't fix about you, but I'm going to invent things that you can't fix about you and I'm going to tell you that they make you terrible and ugly and that you'll never have anything good ever again. And that'll make me better than you. And, like, that happens whether teachers would like to talk about it or not. You know, we're not stopping it, that's for sure. But right. the denial of it, I think, is doing more damage than anything. Because if you teach these kids that they can't resolve their own conflicts that there is no way to do that, that they don't get that practice in, then they end up growing up losing that stage of development. 
do do you see that sort of loss of the ability to have conflict and ability to sort of face your fears in, in the kids that you're dealing with right now? Yeah, I think I I do agree that they are kind of just adding that the cushion for these kids, um, making them feel like nothing is ever gonna go wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, the world is peachy keen and everything is going to be just fine. Absolutely. And then when they, you know, finally step out into the real world and they're like, what the fuck is happening? Like, mm-hmm. this is not what they painted the picture to be. Right. That's why you see a lot of unhappy people walking around because the world probably took a shit on them that day. So, mm-hmm. like, it. I don't feel like we need to be so like against being real with these kids, you know, like, yeah, don't scare them right off the bat, but don't like paint the world to be butterflies and rainbows. Right. Well, and I I think I've said something relatively controversial here and, you know, essentially what it boils down to or what people will say it boils down to is that I'm pro-bullying, which I think is a dumb way to think about it. But no, I'm I'm, I'm pro-children being brave. I think that's a better way to think about it. But, you know, there's obviously a system that's doing this and there's people doing it for a reason. And I don't think that reason is purely philosophical. You know, I think people's jobs are on the line. I think that they're being pressured into this. And I feel like, you know, it's only fair to talk about them for a minute. You know, the teachers and the principals that are being forced into these policies by, you know, PTA or whatever, you know, because, of course, when you send your child off to school, you want them to be safe. Yes, absolutely. Are you robbing them of their ability to be safe later in life? And that's what it looks like to me. And at the end of the day, you know, the pressure comes from lawsuit. Because if, you know, a girl commits suicide in the bathroom and she leaves a note naming all these kids and naming teachers and says it's the school's fault and that goes to court, then court's going to be like, well, obviously you're not doing enough and these kids aren't safe enough and you need to be more strict. You need to be able to monitor them better. It's like it's in the bathroom. What do you want? You want us to have a, a teacher in there, a woman? We, you want us to hire a woman to be in the bathroom during all school hours, just hang out in there and creep kids out? Like, yeah, that's ridiculous. I- you know, um, turning uh, elementary schools and the like into police states isn't a good idea. Uh, and, it, and it seems to be making the problem worse, but they can't stop making it worse because if they don't make it worse, then they're going to get sued uh, because it's not obvious that they did anything uh, right, let alone what they did wrong. Uh, and it's very easy to say, well, they were under your care. This is your fault. And it's like, well, yeah. But, you know, if you're a parent and something happens and you had no ability to do about it, is it your fault still? You know, at at what point do we stop making the schools culpable, the teachers and the principal culpable? And 
we start to, you know, actually impart responsibility onto these kids to, to impart meaning? Where is it that, you know, they lost something to go after in life that, you know, they, they could still in college, they don't know what they want to do with their life because, well, let's be real, everything's pointless, or at least that's what the nihilists think. Right. So what do you think from sort of just, you know, off the top of your head, because like I sprung this on you, uh, what do you think we should do about that sort of pressure and that inability for uh, schools to not be liable against that? Um, is, is it even a fixable problem, do you think? I... I mean, I feel like it should be a fixable problem because it wasn't as big and it wasn't as big of an issue, you know, like 10, 10, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. you know, like we didn't have that issue. Right. Like I know when I was going to school, it wasn't that, you know, they didn't really necessarily paint the world to be what it wasn't or anything like that. And I did genuinely feel safe going there, but it just kind of seems like they've completely flip-flopped the education system, you know? Mm. So I think it should be a fixable thing. Do I know what we could do to fix it? No, not really. Um, it, we have a lot of... Right now, it seems like the world is just constantly in a difference of opinion. Like, right. you know, you've got so many people with so many other thoughts and, you know, like... They, of course, they voice them, but we can't all come together and do something to better ourselves right now. Why do you think that is? <sighs> Honestly, I feel like a lot of people just can't get over the, like, get over themselves, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, they have to be right. Their way is the only way. Right. And I think that it's not just a certain set of people. I think it's everyone kind of has that mentality where their way is the correct way and you're not going to waver their thoughts. Right. So I, it's just a shit ton of people. I think that, you know, being able to be open-minded is a weakness. And, you know, uh, uh, Eric Weinstein, Weinstein, Weinstein. I don't remember. Uh, anyway... And I, I should know this because I listen to him often enough. He has a really good podcast called The Portal, and it's kind of the same idea. Um, but he was talking about this idea of preference falsification. And basically what he was talking about is, you know, if you give out a survey to a bunch of people and you ask them, like, what's your alcohol consumption like? What's your pot consumption like? How many hours do you spend on your phone? How many hours a week do you spend watching TV? You know, how many hours a week do you spend uh, actually, like, processing content? You know, if you ask people about something that, like, they're not proud of, even to an anonymous survey, they're going to lie. Yeah, absolutely. The reason for that is that at some level or another, they they don't want to be kicked out of the group. That they think that there's expected answers of them. And that if they don't give those expected answers all the time and are consistent of it, 
that you know they won't be allowed back in the fort in some sense and i think that that's sort of a, a a form of social bullying that we've forgotten how to combat you know and and it may just be that we're even better at it than most cultures because um i know in japan for sure they in office buildings they typically have like one employee that's specifically american and he's the loud and aggressive american and if he thinks the boss's idea is stupid and everybody else thinks the boss's idea is stupid he'll go in and he'll tell the boss that the idea is stupid right because nobody else will and i think that's a really fun idea because essentially the idea is that you know it's better to be honest and avoid tragedy than lie and be part of the group does that make sense yeah no i mean yeah <laughs> sorry i'm having a hard time these headphones aren't doing something correctly hold on let me see if i can change them out real quick for a better set because they've, they've been giving me problems whole podcast Try now. What am I doing? I uh, was just talking. Oh, okay. But that works. That works. It's good. Okay. Yeah, boy. Okay. So, anyway. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's just that people can't get over themselves. I think it's that they can't get over each other. Oh, yeah. Like, it, it's... So... They... They hate the fact that somebody else could have a different opinion and it might be slightly more right than theirs. Mm-hmm. Or that they've been taught that that's the opinion that they should have. Yeah. A lot of that. You know, I, I, I grew up in a relatively conservative household and, you know, basically the entirety of Obama's presidency, all I heard from my grandfather was how he wasn't a legitimate president because he wasn't born here and how it's all a conspiracy theory brought out by the Democrats and how he's doing a constantly terrible job and et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, they're doing the same thing as Trump right now. So it's like, you know, right. the world didn't explode. Right. Nothing that bad happened during either of their presidencies. And, well, and, and I mean, we'll see if the that remains true for Trump, but... Um, the ability to kind of break out of that and really specifically try to find this new way of thinking is something that I've actually struggled with because I'll go home and they'll say something that's ludicrous that I know, I know for a fact, just like came straight off of Fox News, which is getting as bad as CNN and MSNBC and all the rest of them. It's just in the other direction. Yeah. So it's... It's hard even inside of a family where you're supposed to be protected uh, not to uh, let them have their heyday. Let the loud and the wrong uh, speak alone, you know, and not be challenged. Right. It's just everybody is just so divided. Well, you see, 
we think that, but like this last election was basically 50-50. Yeah. What the statistics are showing us is that there's about 10% on both sides of the political spectrum that are very loud and very annoying and very radical. And then there's this 80% in the middle that doesn't like either, uh, that doesn't like the 10% on either side, uh, but doesn't know what to do about it. So they just kind of pick at random whatever their, you know, personality proclivity is. And they just live with that because like, you know, life goes on and they have other stuff to worry about. But the people that, you know, devote their lives for this and are so obsessed that they will rant on people, uh, rant at people on Twitter for hours a day those are the ones that get heard because there's the voices that are out there. So I, I really don't think that we're divided. Not all that much. It just seems like it. Right. Do you, do you feel like that, like, in the workplace? Do you, do you have conversations where it seems like everybody's relatively divided on something and that you can't even talk about stuff? Um... Not necessarily like politically, um, but uh, we do have a lot of differences in opinion on how like situations should be approached or, you know, stuff like that. We're not really working as a team. We're not meshing together and, you know, taking a situation head on. We all have, it seems like right now we all kind of have our way of dealing with a situation and we end up butting heads with another staff member or, you know, something of that nature. Mm -hmm. So like politically, not necessarily, but as far as like working together as a team, yeah, they, it, it just seems like everybody wants to be in charge. Okay. So I, I think that might actually be a separate phenomenon at some level or another. Uh, Yeah. So like, everything I said to the political side, and I mean, we can go back to that later if we want, but personally, you feel like people are getting more hard-headed and more closed-minded. Yeah, I do. I, I think that, you know, when people get this thought in their head, like, uh, for example, like, someone who might have been there you know a little longer than the the, than the next guy you know whatever um they feel like they automatically rank above them right which in time frame yes but say that that person the other person has more experience Mm -hmm. you know has worked in a situation like worked in a facility like this one or has a degree in, you know, like, psychology, you know, there are so many different things that this person could excel over the one that's been there longer, but that person doesn't see it that way, you know? Right. So do you think that that is simply, like, a power grab, or do you think that, you know, they're honestly trying to get the best thing for the kids done, and they just, they don't see the authority that... Uh, this newer person is calling to. I I could I can see that it's a power like I could see it being a power grab, but I could also just see them being stubborn and bullheaded. You know. Mm-hmm. 
like it it seems to kind of be a little bit of uh like a mixture of both do you feel like it's ironic that that's happening specifically where you're taught how to cope with those things and how to do conflict resolution oh 100 percent, yes 100 percent can agree with that <laughs> irony is a funny thing yeah so let's let's talk more broadly and I'll, I'll bring us back around to the political side of it because why the fuck not um let's say maybe maybe it's not the workplace maybe it's that you've had a similar situation with your family uh or you know just a social group in general where you know maybe your opinion was the governing one and everybody else would be uh scared to uh what's what i'm looking for um not confront you but just to just to disagree uh has there ever been a moment where you've thought that you know you've had that kind of supremacy or that somebody's had that kind of supremacy over you and you've been suppressed or that you've suppressed others in my family it's just anywhere just like if you want to specify family then you can go ahead and do that um no I don't think at least um if I'm being completely honest I I don't tend to lean towards politic talk like right you know my family doesn't just to speak from like a family thing my family doesn't generally pay attention to politics they usually just say oh that person's dumb and then they move on with their lives <laughs> like, honestly kind of surprises me yeah not me i mean obviously but not me it's just one of those like they what about don't really care you know right what about in friend groups <laughs> Um, maybe I'm going down the ra- wrong uh, rabbit trail here. How about yeah? Because I mean, how about with the uh, kids? Have you have you seen any situations where the social pressure was so strong that you know the, the kids that you're dealing with have done the wrong thing on purpose, or or haven't said something when they should? Sometimes yes. Um. I feel like sometimes we've had kids who've like have done something on purpose to um like extend their stay, you know? Like done something that they normally wouldn't do just to buy them time to stay and be with friends. Well, that's, Is that what you're asking or I I wasn't actually what I was asking for, but like you didn't actually have to give me what I was asking for. That's that's probably more interesting than the answer I was looking for, or any answer I was looking for. That's better. Um, so you you have kids that end up getting attached to the environment and the people there so much that they act out so that they can stay. Yeah, we we do have some kids that do that. How often does that work? Um, depends on what they do, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, because... Is this an example, or is it, like, HIPAA guarded? 
Uh, not necessarily because it's not mentioning any person in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, well, I've had kids um, threaten to kill themselves and mm-hmm. have like an actual plan. And the like the person who w- was do like was making those threats wasn't even in there for that c- kind of situation. Right. So like we've had we've had people go to that extreme. I've had kids who didn't necessarily want to go home. So they ran from our step down facility that we have. It's more open. Um mm. and they ran away and when they get when they run away from that facility they end up back at the locked one. Mm-hmm. And they extend their stay and you know like they do it on purpose just because um sometimes they don't want yeah yeah because they're comfortable or they have a quote-unquote girlfriend there or something just ridiculous you know sometimes it is kind of more serious because it's a place to find love (laughs) right i always tell them that's just ridiculous um but like sometimes there are kids who really just don't like to go home to their parents you know Mm. So they find a reason to stay longer. That's fair. Do you uh, do you remember that runaway kid I had at camp? Yes. Oh man, that was wild. Um, yeah. So, I I ended up sort of acting brashly, and you know I I had my disagreements with uh, the faculty there about how we were to approach those situations. Right. How how are you told to approach those situations? Like a, a child threatens to kill themselves and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and is it different from what policy dictates? And if so, why? Um, as far as like, um, like suicide goes, how we approach that, um, we do act very very sensitive on the subject just in case they are taking it seriously you know and they really do feel as though they need to take their own lives um so we kind of try to understand just a little bit of what's going on what kind of pushed them to this point in their lives to want to say those things especially being in in the place that they're they are you know mm-hmm. um, so with those like we all kind of as a facility that you need to approach the situation lightly um but still take it very seriously you know like yeah kind of you show them that you care and that you want to understand what's going on but also be that staff member that can kind of look at it objectively Mm -hmm. and be able to tell whether or not they're being serious or are they kind of taking it to a point where they're just trying to stay you know Mm -hmm. so as a as a whole for that for for the facility i work for we kind of uh, like we we agree on what we should do in a situation like that right so can you tell me about a situation where you disagreed about something and how you've went on and resolved that um there are times when um, a kid can be aggressive mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily extremely aggressive. It's not getting to the point where 
um, they're going to hurt someone, but they're getting to that point where they're they're starting to escalate. Mm-hmm. Um, they may be even like hitting things rather than people. Yeah, yeah, they're not necessarily like attacking anyone specifically yet, but they're building up. And um, my approach to that situation, one is to try to de-escalate the situation. So I do try to get involved, mm-hmm. but. Um, a lot of the times these kids don't want to be de-escalated. They don't want to calm down. They want to let this rage kind of flow, you know? Um, so, uh, especially working with the younger ones, what they do if you try to talk to them is they attack. Hmm. So, um, because they don't, they don't want you to calm them down. They don't want to be calm. They don't want to talk about it. Right. And I get that. So sometimes we back off. But if they get to that point where they want to attack you and you can tell that they're going to attack you, my instinct is to stop that from happening. Not necessarily put them in the restraint that we are taught because I don't want to get to that point. It's mainly I, you know, I kind of grab their wrists and hold them for a second and tell them to take a deep breath. And if that doesn't work, we have a a timeout room that we that we put them in so that they can calm down. Um, and sometimes the facility doesn't think that we need to necessarily put them there at that time. You know, we need to try to talk to them more, but my views are if they're trying to take a swing at me and they have a chance of hurting me, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to take that chance, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, self-defense is fair. Um, right. And the, like my issue with it is like my bosses Mm -hmm. don't spend time with these kids so like there are different levels of aggression and things like that right i understand connected enough that they have a hard time understanding what's actually going on in the moment right right like i've been put in situations where i have genuinely been hurt and like especially by the young kids. Cause that's usually who I work with. I, I have like physically been hurt by a nine year old and I'm not afraid to say that. Like these kids are strong. They don't look like it, but yeah. But when they're pissed off and you're there, you best prepare because like, I can't, the only defense I can, I can do is try to restrain them. Hmm. But like, I can't physically retaliate by any means because right. I'm an adult um but like i i have been physically like physically hurt by a nine-year-old and i've had to hold this kid with another person of course i've had to help physically restrain this child from hurting anyone else Mm -hmm. because he just got to that point he had escalated so high that all he could do was just beat beat me up did you you know chastise you for that not in that instance uh but, like, there have been times where I've had to make a judgment call by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was kind of called out for it. Um, but, like, in an instance where someone is genuinely hurting themselves and I don't have a superior to make the call for me, I have to make that call. And I did at one point and I did get in trouble for it because they didn't think that I should have made the call that I made. 
But again, there was no one around to help me make that call. Right. I made it. But it's it's all about what happens in that in that moment too. Like I've had I've had kids where like we are taking them to the timeout room and on the way there, like I'm not necessarily escorting them there, they're walking with me. On the way there, they're calming down. Or there are times when I could be walking them there and they flip a switch and they just go into straight like vicious mode and want to attack the nearest person. Right. So like it it's a gamble, honestly. Well, that's that is not an easy thing to you know search out and figure out for yourself let alone you know for policies and things like that for a superior right and it's kind of hard for everybody to wrap their heads around what you know the right thing to do is right it it's a lot honestly (laughs) getting back to your your newfound education in the mental health field what are some things that if you had the ability to change about our educational system would you say that again you kind of cut out a little bit if you had the ability to change something about the educational system given your new education and mental health uh what would you do how, how would you change things um i think that schools for one um need to have I think more schools should have therapists there or they should have, like, I know they have the guidance counselor and things, but I do think they need to have an actual therapist there and maybe even like a a mental health specialist, which is what I do. Like, I feel like some kids will open up to like a therapist, but some won't. They need that person to kind of relate to them. That's not necessarily giving them that advice and talking through their past traumas, but like, just there to kind of guide them, you know? Right. So I think more schools really do need to open up that side of things, not look at mental health as such a negative thing because so many people have, you know, anxiety, depression, like, you know, even some kids will have PTSD or, you know, whatever, like they need to open that up so that kids feel safe opening up about themselves, you know? And they don't feel scared to be themselves. Right. So if if I could change anything, it would be opening the schools more to mental health, like teaching more about it, honestly. Like, so many people are blind to the fact of what mental health is. They're so, like, they hear that and they're like, oh my gosh, we have to treat that person completely differently. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's not necessarily the case at all right well and you know it's kind of hard to ferret out what accommodations should and shouldn't be made um i i would almost say that that's almost not radical enough because like you know having the one guidance counselor seems not enough even having three people per school seems not enough it's like yeah you know I mean, I'm on a campus of like 4,000 and we have like six and they're completely overwhelmed. 
So how do we take that and we scale it up? Because like, you know, you can only have so many therapists and it's not like you can have like one for every five students because then you'd have an entire population of therapists that you need to pay and take care of. So, you know, I think the question is more along the lines of how do we make teachers and students aware of those things at a high enough level that they're actually able to put those things into practice as a a unit, as a whole school at the same time, rather than trying to put all of that on the shoulders of two or three people, because I don't think it's feasible. No, and and just imagine those people who are sitting in those positions where it's only two or three of them, like trying to take on the weight of so many people needing help. Mm-hmm. It, it's completely overwhelming for those those people because they feel, you know, they're put in this job position. They feel like they need to do anything and everything they can for every single person. And it gets so overwhelming for them. Right. Yeah, I, I think a lot of those people are feel like they're drowning and don't have really any ability to do anything. Uh, right. There was a Greek life meeting here a while back. It was triggered by accusations of, you know, uh, Greek life allowing underage drinking, which, um, let's be honest, is probably more normal than not. But that's sort of besides the point. It's against federal policy. It's against school policy. La da da da. So we got called all together by the dean of students, and he gave us an incredibly long. It was probably about forty minutes speech about consent, about what sexual abuse actually is, about alcohol consumption, about safety measures around it, um, around drugs in general. And just like all the ages and everything. And honestly, I felt incredibly depressed by the time it was over because he didn't actually address anything that was going wrong. Right. He didn't, he didn't fix the problems. He just said, here are some things you can do to mitigate it. Like, right. you know, and, and I, I hate... I hate the idea that like consent is the thing that we should be looking at because obviously it's important, but I don't think it's actually the problem. I don't think that, you know, our, our inability as uh, men, as boys, whatever age you're at, uh, starts at the lack of consent. I think, or our, our, disregard for consent i guess you could say i don't think that that's a thing and i don't think that it's wise that we teach uh, that we treat it like a thing i think what's actually going on is that as well as becoming more socially inept uh as the generations grow up because of that coddling because of that inability to grow and stretch ourselves outside of supervision that we actually haven't learned how to court properly. We haven't learned how to have fun with each other and how not to take things uh, too seriously and how to stay emotionally stable and all of the things that would make uh, a girl comfortable enough to actually engage in any sort of relationship. And I think, you know, I wanted to stand up and I say, stop, you're doing it all wrong. You know, and obviously that wasn't, my place because i'm a student 
but I, what I wanted to say was something along the lines of what you need to be telling them is that it is their responsibility to make sure that whoever they're with is completely comfortable the entire time and that if you lose the ability to do that to walk away because it's not going to get better because you just try harder it's only going to make it worse and asking that responsibility out of guys i think is more potent of an idea than uh just simply saying you need to ask before every step because let's be honest most of consent is implied anyway it's nonverbal and it should be nonverbal because if it was verbal it would ruin the experience is that right what I think? yeah and then like uh the, he he talked about like what alcoholism looks like and how many drinks a week it is and you know what to look for in our friends uh, who are probably alcoholics and what to tell them when we discover that they are, you know, and like, it, I mean, the kind of this, so at the same way with pot, you know, if you can't go to class without being high, if you can't get out of bed in the morning without a drink, uh, obviously something is wrong and something needs to be fixed. But it, he was treating like the substances were the problem. I don't think the substances are the problem. I think it, the the substances are how we've failed the problem, you know, how, how we've failed to address it and how we've continually tried to address it. Right. It's it, like people have found that these drugs or, or like alcohol not like helped them cope with the situation, mm-hmm. but made them not think of the situation that they're dealing with and using it as their negative coping skill, you know? Right. So I, I think the real question that comes out of that is what has gone so wrong that we feel the need, or at least a significant chunk of us feel the need that we have to be inebriated or we have to be high in order to survive college you know? right and and maybe the answer really is that you know college is just too hard and we need to make it easier but you know we we went to that juco and that was that was pretty damn easy as far as schools go like yeah absolutely people were still failing out people were still using alcohol and pot to to cope it made like i mean I know that they that they still had lots of dropouts and stuff, but like on the joking side of it, it made being able to go eat in the cafeteria much better. <laughs> what do you mean? Because like you remember when we when it would start at the first of the semester, the oh, beginning yeah. of the year, there were so many so many people, and it would make eating so hard. And then like you know halfway through the semester, you get those people who are like, I can't do this anymore. So you get dropouts or people who just don't show up anymore right. to eat. So it was just like we were in the calf and we were eating and it was all f- ate fast and yeah. had time to talk after. But like, you know, at the beginning of the semester, you have all of those people who were like, I can do this. And then halfway through, they're like, no, I can't. Right. Well, and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about them, but I'm also talking about guys like, you know, Adrian, like he was a football star. You, you had women of, of basically 
all ages and everything else wanting to lick his abs like this guy was on it he would right. the guy to be and he dropped out of football and he lost that structure in his life and he turned to weed instead and he just lost himself in it you know? absolutely and it's like how how do we prevent that well i don't i don't think the answer is prohibiting alcohol and weed because like prohibition didn't work we know that yeah people figure out how to get around it if they want it bad enough yeah i think it's the lack of determination like we when you find like when you find that you're going to college for something and you lose that confidence that you can't do it anymore or you know you fall into an addiction of some kind um you completely lose the determination to even try. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I've been there. Like, I I lost the will to to give a shit. You know, yeah. like yeah. I really did. I fell into a big slump where I didn't think what I was going to school for was going to be worth it in the end. So I just gave up completely. Right. And that you know bit me in the ass. Like, it it sucked. And I see now that it was it was a poor choice for me to fall into that you know yeah but again like as you grow older you get more wiser about situations where you know you made a bad bad choice mm-hmm. but like i think it's we need to start building people's confidence and building their determination to be able to complete something yeah because i think that's where it falls it's it falls where you don't find yourself very determined for anything because they don't have that one thing that they really want to push themselves for, you know? Mm-hmm. It and honestly, career choice is a is a big is a big issue because people think that, you know, like even going to a JUCO, you go for basically your your general classes. Right. And maybe to dip your toe in something that you might make but some people like now seem like when they go to JUCOs, they're looking for their career and they're set on it and then they get in it and they're two years into the career that they don't even want. So then they question everything, you know, that's definitely a problem that people have had. And I've, I've been there myself probably more recently than I'd like to admit to myself. Uh, right. But I think that we have done almost two hours and that is a really good chunk of podcast so i think we can cut it off about here and come back and start to address some of these things in more detail because they are deep and they are real problems and uh i I don't think that we're gonna just get it done in even the next two hours so this might even be like a, a multi uh piece thing and that might be fun right and we can come back with more facts and things like that like we'll be able to be more educated on the situation so that we can have a, a more understanding of it and have a better conversation right all right well thank you for joining me on rose glass today everybody stay sharp stay thinking and have a good night